Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> We're good. So, welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. We, Sammy and I, that's me. just met in person and recorded this episode. A few technical difficulties. Yeah, we're really learning. Let me tell you. Yeah, we, you know, we're low-key like, okay, maybe the Zoom podcast remote situation is better. <laughs> Plot twist, like, let's just, like, put it this way. I think less is more. We got through our tech glitches, so mm-hmm. miles well to us. Snaps, really, golf but... claps, and all that jazz. Um, but this episode that we recorded, you guys are going to be super amped about. I mean, I know I am. Mm-hmm. And we interview Emily Conrad, who is the author of The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College, which is a super awesome book that talks about the Electoral College. So, of course, this has been a super contentious issue. It's been one that has been, I would say, on the tips of everyone's tongues, even more so since the 2016 election um, in the wake of what were called faithless electors, which were electors that did not vote alongside you know, party lines and uh, kind of flipped the narrative on its head. So of course we wanted to shed some light mm-hmm. on what on earth happened there, but also talk about what the electoral college is. It feels like this behemoth of a concept or institution that no one really understands. So we wanted to peel back those layers and give you guys the 411. Yeah, I think it's especially relevant this year, and not only just obviously the topic of the Electoral College, which we all need to know more about, but this topic of faithless electors, which is like the topic of 2020 and like what could happen with the Electoral College, um, is this concept of faithless electors, and that's exactly what her book is about and what her expertise is on, so like couldn't be more perfect um, and, you know, for the times that we're in. Dare I say, timely? If I could pick a word that would describe this episode and this topic, it would indeed be timely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So Uh, we're super excited to introduce Emily Conrad. Welcome to the show. Uh, I guess let's just get the party started. Yeah, we first want to dive in and start with 
our stupid question segment. So we have a ton of stupid questions here about the Electoral College, and we really <laughs> just want to start with getting a foundational knowledge on what it is, how it works, and the history of it. So what is the Electoral College? Yeah, so... Well, the first thing is, is that there is a misconception on election day that we go to vote for the president, and that is technically not true. Um, what we're doing when we vote on election day is that we are voting for a slate of electors who will vote for the president on our behalf. And um, different, basically, what, what happens is that if you vote for the Republican candidate, and if the Republican candidate wins, then the Republican Party slate of electors will become that slate, that state's electors. If the Democratic candidate wins, then a Democratic, um, then a Democratic candidate will become that uh, state's uh, electors. Um, there are 538 electoral college votes. Um, so there are 538 electoral college votes. So to be honest, at the end of the day, there are only 538 votes that really actually count in, in the country. Um, the, the, the electoral college system was an integral part of the country's uh, founding. And it was kind of a history, it was, a, it was definitely a product of the era, a product of the time. Uh, you take a look, um, at that point in time, there was no country that had a uh, mechanism by which to, ex to, by which to determine the leader of the executive branch. So, um, and one of the major challenges, you take a look at the 18th century, were communication and transportation issues. And what a lot of the framers of the Constitution were concerned about was that people would just vote for their regional favorites or people that they'd heard about rather than what was best for the country. So the Electoral College was built off of this system, and it's really interesting when you start digging into the Electoral College, one of the things is that each, uh, you know, it was founded before we even had political parties in the country. So it was really interesting. Each elector was given two votes, and the person with the most Electoral College votes would become president, and the person with the second most Electoral College votes would become vice president. Um, well, whenever you had the creation of parties and party tickets, I mean, that just was, went completely out the window. You couldn't have a president belonging to one political party and a VP belonging to another. So throughout history, you've seen the Electoral College change. Um, and really, what the biggest challenge, it was really the development of this party apparatus. Um, another thing to mention is that when um, the Electoral College was first ideated, um, many of the states didn't have popular elections. Even by 1824, only three-fourths of the state, uh, three-fourths of the states chose their electors to popular vote. Um, the other states just had state legislatures do it. So um, this, you know, when you start unpacking the Electoral College, it, it's actually quite complicated. Um, However, one of the things, you know, besides just focusing on the history of it, I think it's very important to focus on how it is implemented and run today. Because, you know, we often get bogged down in these historical arguments where, you know, where it's kind of forgotten, how does it operate? And um, that's what I tried to do through my research and also through my book. Yeah, I mean, again, such a complicated process. I mean, we can get into that later as far as whether, it's something we should keep around, especially with our political environment today. 
Um, but another question we have is like, how do states choose their electors? Well, I wish there was just one single answer for that, but unfortunately <laughs> there isn't. And, um, and I think that this is one of the things that many people don't realize about the electoral college, which is the fact that it is not one single monolithic organization. It's really divided up between states and different states have different processes by which they choose their electors. So some states are just wonderfully democratic um, in, the, in, the, in the process by which they choose their electors. So you'll have a, a, state, a congressional district caucus and the people who attend, you know, the Democrats who attend that congressional district caucus will elect the, um, will elect the elector that will represent them in the electoral college. That can be very democratic. Um, and then you have other states where just say that, um, that the party executive committee will just handpick their electors. Sometimes they handpick themselves, which is kind of interesting <laughs> to think about. <laughs> um, and then you have other states that operate quite differently where you see kind of maybe more party elites playing a role. Um, so, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania, the electors are handpicked by the can candidates teams themselves. So the Biden-Harris campaign picked out their electors and the Trump-Pence campaign picked out their electors. So it it's really interesting. And when we consider the Electoral College, I think that these intricacies are often forgotten about. And we forget kind of, do we want our Electoral College to look more democratic in its nature? And in which case, you know, these states that actually have elections to choose electors, might be a model that we would want to consider. Um, it's really interesting because the electors who are people who want to be electors, they actually run campaigns um, to become electors. And so, you know, everybody in their congressional district caucus will know who they are. Um, so it's actually quite interesting, but there's no uniformity behind it. Um, so you have some people that are chosen in, a, in the springtime, you have some people that are chosen in the summer, some that are chosen in the fall. And whenever you have primaries is actually can be quite problematic. And this is something that I explored in my book. Um, people became electors without knowing that who they would be voting for. So people, Bernie supporters would become electors still thinking that Bernie might win. Or um, Cruz supporters became electors still thinking that Chad Cruz might win. So this is actually quite interesting to, to think about the electoral college. We think of it as kind of all like, oh, these are people who are rah, rah for their candidates. But depending on when they're selected, they may not be that, um, that supportive of their individual candidate. Jeez, I mean, problematic, maybe, <laughs> just a little bit. Why do states have different time slots for selecting their electors? Is there any reasoning or background story uh, for why this happens? I wish I knew the answer to that, um, but I mean, you, you take a look at different states. I mean, it, it's even this, I, I'm not sure if, if, at least in South Carolina, where I'm from, when I went to vote, um, electors' names aren't even on the ballot. So it really depends. I mean, some states, they have um, their electors' names on the ballot. In some states, they even provide a level of compensation for electors to become electors. In some states, they don't. Um, it's not a lot. It's more like, oh, if you drove to the state capitol to vote on the Electoral College voting day, you know, we're going to comp you for that and maybe comp you for food. But in other states, it's like, no, you're not allowed to get any compensation at all. 
So each state, and that's, I think this is what makes the Electoral College so difficult to research is that when you start digging into it, you're really having to dig into maybe 50 different types of Electoral College. Um, And of course, these are, at the end of the day, this is how we select our president, but the the intricacies in understanding who who gets there and how is actually kind of difficult. Okay, the other question I had was when, on election night, when we're looking at an electoral map, can you kind of explain what that means and like why states get different numbers of electors or how that all works when you're looking at election night at the news and there's these guys like pointing at this electoral map? What does <laughs> all of that Benaki. mean? <laughs> yeah, so so basically it's just, um, um, it's basically the number of electors that your state has is the is two for representing the number of senators and then the number of uh, representatives you have in the House of Representatives. So it's the same amount of representation that, that a state has in Congress. Um, is the amount of representation that a state has in the electoral college, um, and so it's uh, so it, it it does provide some level of just as the the Senate does, it does provide some additional level of representation for more more rural states and more and less populated states, but it's the same representation that we see in Congress. So like, I know the census obviously has a lot to do with representation. Does the census that just happened this year have anything to do with what type of representation we'll have electoral college wise four years from now? For sure. So, so if um, when if ever if the census determines uh, that different that more states will have more representation in the House of Representatives, that will also be um, that will also be mirrored in the in the electoral college. Gotcha. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Wow. In case that wasn't a motivator for filling out the census, yeah. you know, we're kind of past the deadline, <laughs> but everyone in the next 10 years, do it again, participate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it clearly matters. It'll impact the, the end of those elections, the results and what type of policies we therefore have. So shows how important and yeah. integral literally filling out basically a Google form is. Yeah. Well, on this topic of we keep hearing in the news and with kind of these threats post-election and Trump not conceding of this topic of faithless electors. Um, And I know you talk about this in your book, but can you explain to us what a faithless elector is? Yes, I'm I'm happy to. So uh, a faithless, when, when we select our electors, we assume that they're going to vote for the winner of our state's popular vote. And that is an assumption, um, but a faithless elector is somebody who does not do that. So this would be somebody who would be maybe um, a de- the Democratic candidate won in their state, and this would be somebody who would vote for somebody other than the Democratic candidate. Um, or somebody, if a Republican won in a state, somebody who would vote uh, different than the Republican candidate. So that, that is what a faithless elector is. And um, if you take a look at history, there have not been that many instances of faithless electors. Um, But in 2016, and this is what got me interested in the topic, is that you saw the most faithless electors that you had in modern presidential history, and they're both Democrats and Republicans. So for me, I was just fascinated, like thinking to myself, what what happened in the last election that caused so much faithless electors? And could we continue to see this trend moving forward? But a lot of people, they get very scared by it and they think that it could change the election. 
Um, unless the, the electoral college vote is very close to that 270 mark that's necessary to win the majority, it is unlikely to, but um, you know, you can't remove it from the, the, the realm of yeah. possibility. I actually didn't know that about 2016. I remember that year people talking about, oh, don't worry, like the electoral college will vote in Hillary's favor. And like, that's our chance of like maybe winning people just who are we're in complete denial. Um, but how, so how many people were faithless electors in 2016? So you had 10 attempts at a faithless vote, uh, at faithless votes around the country. Seven of those, um, seven of those were deemed uh, legitimate votes. And then you also had two other people who publicly considered faithless votes and publicly said they were going to vote faithless and they were pressured um, to step down as electors. So um, those are also narratives that I include in my book because I think that they're quite interesting. Um, so it, it was, it's really interesting to see what happened there in particular and, um, and just thinking what this means for the future. Um, one of the things that people don't realize is that for, I think for, for now, maybe decades, uh, electors have actively been lobbied to change their votes after the, the general election. And I think that this is extremely interesting. I was, uh, you know, I talked to people from 2012 and they, they say, oh, I was lobbied to change my vote against Obama. Um, you, you see 2016 and there were so many campaigns um, to get Republican electors to change their votes. Um, I mean, 100% of Republican electors were contacted, lobbied. Many of them received death threats. Um, some of them claimed that they were that, that they received uh, bribes, or they, that they didn't receive bribes, so they were offered bribes to change their votes. Um, and that's really quite interesting to consider, um, particularly as I mentioned, some of these people are elected democratically, and they might just be normal people just active in their local party and just kind of this bombards them whenever they become an elector. So it's really quite interesting to consider that. In 2016, there was actually a really interesting movement called the Hamilton Electors. And this was started by uh, Michael Baca out of Colorado and Brett Shafello out of Washington State. And they were both Democratic electors. And basically, they decided the night of the election that Hillary had lost her chance to win because, you know, she she was nowhere close in the Electoral College vote. And they said, but how could we get keep Trump from winning um, the presidency? So they started a movement to convince Democratic electors to vote for a moderate Republican candidate in an attempt to get uh, Republican electors who may not have been 100% with Trump to defect from Trump and deny him the 270 to win. And this was a fascinating thing um, because it, it also showed um, a lot of, uh, it showed it showed many challenges with the electoral college system. Um, and it was really interesting to, to think about electors lobbying other electors to change their vote. And of course they were lobbying both Republicans and Democrats. Um, that being said, there was only one person who switched their vote from Trump in, um, in 2016 due to the Hamilton electors. Um, but over, I've heard from, from several people that they were actively talking with over 50 Republican electors and they thought that they had a good chance of getting enough people to, to, to flip. That's crazy. And I think too, just the idea that you can lobby to change people's votes 
after the election has already been decided is crazy to me. And it makes me wonder who initiates this lobbying? Like, does it come from the DNC, the RNC? What are the, the essentially the roots and the ways that people um, become the, the lobbying vein here? Well, I wish I had a better answer to that question. Um, when I really started my research into this, um, I really delved into it in 2019. And by then, a lot of uh, a lot of the things, that, a lot of names had been forgotten and people had thrown away their buckets and buckets of mail. But in 2016, there was actually with, because you have Move On, you have a lot of petitions, you actually saw a really, really strong grassroots um, movement to lobby electors to change their votes. Um, people would say that they would receive buckets and buckets of mail a day. And most of these would be handwritten letters, um, which, is, which is extremely interesting to consider. Um, there was a really funny uh, Saturday Night Live ske sketch, actually. I'm not sure if you, you, you guys saw it or if you remember it, where Hillary Clinton is standing in front of a Republican elector's door holding posters like Love Actually, yeah. <laughs> trying to convince her to, 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 to change I her vote. I do remember that. That's so funny. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it, it was really gaining a lot of traction uh, at that point in time. Um, it was, uh, and, and the lobbying of electors, uh, you know, at that point became such a, a big thing that even Saturday Night Live kind of spoofed it. So um, this is something that we see. And, um, and, you know, I think it just kind of depends on who wins the election to determine who's putting money in to try to sway it. All right, guys, quick break, because we wanted to actually introduce to you guys a new podcast um, that we find particularly pertinent to the things that we talk about on this show. And we want to put on your radar. And so, you know, this election, once again, a majority of white women voted for Trump. We've talked about these things. And so why have white women throughout history aligned their politics, not with women of color, but with white men? And why does white women's support for Trump still come as a shock to so many? So on White Picket Fence, a new podcast from Wonder Media Network, host Julie Kohler seeks to understand how white womanhood in America has been constructed, how it's evolved, and how it's affected our politics. So it's a podcast about how white women have fallen short and why we need to step up. Listen and subscribe to White Picket Fence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. So for everyone listening, the book is called The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. It's great. We could not recommend it more. And there will be a link in our episode bio for you to purchase. So stay tuned. But... Obviously, we want to hear about the journey that took you to doing this research. So, A, what is the, the premise of your research in the book, and how did you decide to take the research on? Well, I was, um, I, I was doing a paper for, for my master's degree, and I needed to include like some footnotes about the Electoral College in my paper, and this was in 2017, and I... Uh, came across this this one sentence in an article saying that there are this many faithless electors. And I didn't know what that term even meant. So I just started researching it. And uh, when I realized that there were both Democrat and Republican faithless electors, immediately I just got this sense like there's a story here. Um, why did you have both sides defect like this? And 
for me because my background was in international relations and I'm, you know, talking about like foreign policy and, you know, all this sort of thing. I mean, I, I immediately got paranoid, like, oh, like, was this foreign interference? I mean, everybody was talking about foreign interference, collusion, last election. I'm just like, you know, what, what does this mean? So I just, I guess I kind of just went on this, maybe a little bit of a tangent. I started looking up these people. And the more I looked them up, the more these people's narratives just really caught me because they were so different. Um, and I was just thinking to myself, oh, this is just so interesting. So I just started friending them on, on Facebook and just saying, hey, will you tell me your story? And um, and so they start and so they started responding and I I started this process of interviewing them. And I mean, the interviews took you know, well over the course of a year. Um, and I would just kind of talk with them. Normally begin, tell, I would ask them to explain how they would get involved in politics. And then maybe the next interview, we would talk about uh, how they became an elector in the electoral college. And then maybe the final interview, we'd discuss what happened that made them decide to vote faithlessly. And even the, and what, what was interesting was that even though all of them made the choice to vote faithlessly, um, if you really started looking into their narratives, they all had very different reasons how they got there. And the electors that I interviewed were really quite diverse in their, in their background. They came from all, they were all different ages, came from all corners of the country, different socioeconomic realities, um, different, um, different ethnic backgrounds. And so I was just very fascinated to see what happened in their lives that would make them do something so dramatic and would possibly have them lose their standing within their party apparatus because i mean people who who become electors i mean you know that they love their party right i mean that's an integral part of their lives for them to get selected for this so you know why are they willing to give that up so it was really extremely interesting for for me to do that i did interview the two founders of the hamilton electors which i mentioned earlier and those are included in my book um, I interviewed Robert Satyakam, who is a PLIP uh, Native American activist, and he decided to vote for Faith Spotted Eagle for president. And that was actually the first electoral college vote for somebody of uh, for a Native American. So that, that that's quite interesting. Uh, so a first was certainly pioneered in the last electoral college. Um, I interviewed a couple of Republicans. One of them was a former refugee from South Vietnam, and uh, he decided to step down rather than uh, vote for Trump just based off of his own personal beliefs. But he was a long, he was a businessman, long supporter of the Republican Party. So that was extremely interesting to go through his thought process. Um, so it was, uh, so it's extremely, for me, it was extremely interesting to kind of look at all these individuals and see what happened that that made them decide to vote faithlessly and because a lot of the times we hear the word faithless and we're just like oh that's horrible right um but i really wanted to explore what was what happened that made them want to do this and kind of bringing that looking ahead could that happen again um and just getting an understanding of you know why this happened and and you know because that that's the key to understanding if this could happen in the future right and what ultimately did your research show? Like, what, was there kind of a common conclusion amongst, you know, all your research and the people you interviewed? Or was it wide ranging of all, like, the reasons why? Like, what really did you come to find? 
Well, it was very wide ranging. And of course, you know, I I came across, I did this really just interviewing people and getting a, and getting a really human perspective of the electoral college. Um, So there, there's been other people who who focus kind of just getting demographics of the electoral college um, and getting a sense of who these people are and, you know, maybe what background they're from, their age, that sort of thing. Um, But for me, I really wanted to get the stories of how people rationalize their experience in the Electoral College. Um, That being said, there were some similarities that I think are quite interesting looking, looking, you know, moving ahead and and looking forward. One of them is that every single Democratic elector who decided to vote faithlessly were originally brought into the 2016 election as supporters of Bernie Sanders. So I think that that's extremely interesting. Um, and looking forward to 2020, you don't necessarily think that there'll be faithless electors, but if Biden has enough electoral college votes to spare, might a few people say, oh, I'm going to still vote for, for Bernie because of my personal belief that, that he has the right vision for the country. It, it's possible, you know? Um, and so that, that's something interesting that I think that people should, should just keep an eye on, just as a, the Electoral College is a, is a mechanism by which people can kind of, can have a massive platform to share what's important uh, to them. And especially if they think that the party apparatus isn't listening, they, they, might, they might do that. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely interesting. And I think also, at least before this, I didn't realize that you could vote for, other candidates that had previously been attached to the platform. So for the Democratic Party, the fact that Bernie had not won in the primary but still could get an electoral vote, whoa, plot twist in my head. That's kind of weird that that rule exists that you, like I would understand very much if it's like, okay, maybe I'm gonna vote outside my party, who else is the representative of each party, which I have opinions Mm -hmm. on as well. But the fact that you can essentially like go back in time and be like, let me pull this old candidate out and, yeah. you know, <laughs> put a vote there. That's yeah. I think it's funky. so crazy too, how there's almost like three different, I guess, like potential like victor pathways, right? So there's like the popular vote and then there's, you know, the electoral map and how that plays out on election night. And then there's this like other step of the actual process of the electors choosing and there's then another potential like maybe obviously it's not always likely but there is literally a potential that then some other candidate could potentially be picked like it's crazy that there's so many different pathways and like systems of which a candidate can technically be chosen um it's just wild and I guess now kind of looking in the frame of this year um, and what's going on, I mean, we have a projected winner right now and a president-elect, Joe Biden, um, and we have a current president who is not yet conceded and who is filing lawsuits for voter fraud. Um, and you know, political experts are kind of diving into this to see if there's any feasibility, but even beyond the lawsuits, there's now this conversation of faithless electors, which people are kind of really opening their eyes to this year, because I think they got a taste of it in 2016. But um, I don't know, like, do you think there is reason to be suspicious of faithless electors this year? And kind of what do you think amongst all the drama and the rhetoric of 2020 and the election, like what could potentially happen? 
Okay, so loaded yeah, question. That's, uh, loaded question. <laughs> so um, first of all, I, I have to mention the Supreme Court cases over the summer, and um, these were extremely influential as as we as we go forward to talking about faithless electors. Um, so basically, the two Hamilton electors, uh, the two founders of the Hamilton electors movement, were involved in two separate Supreme Court cases about faithless electors. And in that, the Supreme Court decided unanimously, which was really interesting, um, that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. And uh, what this technically means is that um, if you take a look at states, um, there are 30 some odd states that have some sort of binding mechanism that say um, a candidate should, or an elector should vote for the candidate who won the state's popular vote. Um, for the vast majority of them, though, there are no legal repercussions, or if there are legal repercussions, it might just be a fine. So that's something that's, that's extremely important to, to look at. Um, but state legislatures, they could, implement, um, they could implement legislation to bind electors to the vote, now according to the Supreme Court rulings. Um, that being said, there are, at the moment, there are only 14 states that can actually remove an elector after a faithless vote. The rest of the states, the, the vote stands as cast. Um, so one of the interesting isms, and um, there was a Minnesota elector in 2016, and I did not talk to him, unfortunately. I was unable to get in contact with him, um, but he voted for Bernie Sanders, um, but Minnesota had a binding elector law, so they removed him. But I noticed that he's on the 2020 roster for as for Minnesota electors oh. again. So I'm just all like, is he just gonna like vote for Bernie Sanders and then get removed again as a protest vote? I don't know. But I thought to myself that's so interesting um, that he would be voted in as an elector yet once again by the same constituents after they knew um, his vote didn't ca didn't count. So, but that that was that's an example of a, of a place where. A faithless vote was uh, was issued, and then it, and then the elector was removed. Um, but most states actually don't have that apparatus, so that's important. Looking at uh, moving forward, is that not all states allow faithless electors, um, but most do, um, at least for the time being. Um, so as we look ahead to 2020, um, really the challenge is is um, could there be faithless electors? Um, especially now with the electoral co college margins, um, if there are faithless electors, it is unlikely to impact the results of the election. Um, you might see some Republicans that may not be strong Trump supporters decide to vote for another candidate in an attempt to support a certain direction of the party in 2024. That could happen. You could see a group of people say, oh, well, I don't necessarily support the Biden candidate. I would prefer to vote for somebody else. But these would be more maybe considered protest votes um, rather than anything that could change the outcome of the election. They're still extremely important to pay attention to, but you can't necessarily say that it's going to affect the outcome of the election. Uh, that being said, um, a what's getting a lot of attention right now is the safe harbor deadline. And basically what, uh, what, it, what it seems like what's happening, and the Atlantic actually ran a, a piece about this in September, and I thought to myself, I think that this is impossible to happen, but as this election is ramping up, it's actually, it looks like it, it, that might uh, at least be in the, in the cards, at least in a couple of states. 
um, if if state state legislatures ultimately do have some level of power over the electoral college, most states have elector have election code and um, and the election code is very specific. But is it possible that if enough doubt is thrown over an election, just and there are allegations of fraud and everything, that 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 somebody's going to try to manipulate the state legislature to selecting a different roster of electors? It, it is possible. And um, if you take a look, um, the Electoral College does have the, this uh, state legislatures do have some level of power over it, even in spite of elect and election code. I think that this is what's gaining a little bit of uh, a fear, not necessarily of faithless electors in general, just the idea that maybe both uh, the, the electors may not <laughs> may not be what what we think that they who they are, rather than faithless electors. Right. Wow. I mean, I think it's interesting too that these electors have this idea that they're pushing ahead a certain agenda for the party, which is fair. Everyone has their own ideas, concepts, whatever that they think are leading um, and should lead for, you know, sort of their affiliation. But at the same time, like you have the popular vote and people are making their opinion heard. Yeah. I mean, this one person potentially, right? Then trying to take a stand for their own yeah. personal vibe for the <laughs> vibe. Oh my God, for the party. <laughs> no, really though. You know, for their, or for their own platform that they want forward. And to think that that opinion is more important than say 67 million people voting for a particular candidate. I mean, that blows my mind. I mean, trust me, I get it. I'm only child, I'm very opinionated. <laughs> I get wanting to push things through my own platform and agenda, but that just seems like ridiculous. Yeah, and I think that really brings us into this next topic of like the future of the electoral college. And I think People have been just talking about um, whether it should stay or, you know, be removed from our system. Um, I think that based off of just my research, you know, the idea of removing it will, will require a lot of political capital. And um, because it will likely need a constitutional amendment. And that, of course, needs to be ratified by, you know, a, a large percentage of the states. And um, I think that's going to be actually quite difficult moving forward. Um, and, you know, if we start taking a look at the Electoral College, it's, uh, you know, there are immediate things that can be looked at and addressed as a mechanism for reforming the Electoral College. And we don't really have this discussion because we talk so much about keeping it or getting rid of it. Um, but I hope that my, my book can bring to light some of the issues surrounding the Electoral College, which you know, if it stays for even another four, eight years, I mean, we need to address the, these issues because as I said before, there are 538 votes at the end of the day. And, um, you know, a bad faith foreign actor can, you know, pick those out and kind of, you know, put pressure. You know, I'm not saying that the, the people who become electors are, you know, based off of my experience, are very good people. Um, these are people who work hard in their parties. But you know, I mean, this is this is a this is a problem. If people are getting bombarded and lobbied, and we really need to rethink about the, uh, rethink this system because they, they their votes are extremely important moving forward, and we need to make sure that they that they're I guess have some level of protection. Yeah. At least that's that's my go-to. Yeah, I mean, I think the other <laughs> interesting part that we have to think about because I know everyone's kind of easy answer is it like why isn't the popular vote 
Um, but there is also something to be said about the Electoral College and how it helps, you know, less populated areas be represented at the federal level. Um, because, you know, if it was just the popular vote, like us in New York and California would be just, we would win every time, right? So we have to also make sure that throughout the country people are represented. But there also is a major problem when someone can win by millions of votes um, of the popular vote and end up not winning um, the presidency. So I don't know, do you, in your research and maybe just in your personal thoughts about everything like do you think there is a way to at least amend it so that it's a I guess cleaner process um while still like holding up kind of the pros of the electoral college and making sure like people are represented equally if that makes sense well well honestly speaking I you know my research was more into how it operates and not so much how to reform it but based off of the the amount of work I've done in it um, you know, I'm, I'm able to pinpoint some problems that exist in, in this system. And I think one of the biggest problems is the winner-take-all mechanism. Um, so, I mean, and you take a look. I mean, if a candidate wins by 0.1%, they get all of that state's electoral college votes. Um, that is very unrepresentative. I mean, you, you take a look. This is how those margins between millions and millions really build up. Um, and so you have Maine and you have Nebraska, and these are two states that have a congressional district model um, in the Electoral College. Um, so, for example, they will, um, so if a, if a candidate wins a congressional district, they get that congressional district's Electoral College vote. And then whoever wins the state popular vote gets the two Electoral College votes associated with that state. Um, this creates slightly more competition, and it also allows certain areas to have, um, maybe they feel like they have more say. It's the way that you saw, you know, Biden win an, a congressional, uh, an electoral college vote in Nebraska, and Trump win one in Maine. Um, and you saw them both actively campaigning for that. I mean, if, if they didn't have that, I, I doubt that there <laughs> would have been many much money thrown into Nebraska or much money thrown into, into Maine. Um, this is one mechanism that would all that would, you know, dramatically change the Electoral College. Um, you have some other states that have the National Popular Vote Compact. Um, you know, and I think that that's, that's something that other that states are also considering. Um, I think that that is going to be interesting moving forward. Um, for me, the nature of politics is that it's quick to change. Um, I'm not sure if they would be, if, if these states would be that happy to be putting their electoral college votes for somebody who didn't win, uh, who didn't win their state's popular vote, but won the national one. Um, you know, um, so I think that that's problematic moving forward. But one of the things about the Electoral College, and I think it's maybe one of the reasons why there's not more emphasis put on its reform, is because it really upholds the two parties. Um, if you start to have, you know, congressional districts uh, who ha that have some say over the Electoral College process, um, what you might start to see is that, you know, this one congressional district, you might have a regional candidate gain a lot of support. And if enough regional candidates gain a lot of support, then maybe you will never get that 270 majority for one of the major party candidates to win. And um, so what's going to end up happening, even with the slightest bit of electoral college reform, 
you are going to see a lot more maybe plurality of political voices, which in, we always assume is good. But, you know, also it does provide opportunities for radicals to allow their voices to be heard yeah, as well. That's such a good point. And, um, and so this is this is something why I think that there hasn't been more effort to really transform or reform the Electoral College to, to date. People are afraid maybe what what the country will look like in um, without the Electoral College, without that that system kind of holding up this the two parties. So, so that that's, that's so my true. personal opinion. Yeah. And and you know, like looking at uh, Ford, you know, I was uh, talking because I, I'm kind of, I I've reached out and I've been talking to just a couple of of electors in in 2020 to get their sense of of what's happening. And you know, one of them said to me, and this is a Republican elector, that he felt like you know, just based off of his knowledge of other Republicans in you know in in his party that allowing of you know getting rid of the electoral college might provide them a platform he said oh there might be straight up nazis getting you know like electoral uh, getting support and that was his that was his comment and i thought to myself wow that's very interesting um this is something we don't think about we when we talk about let's you know, let's change the electoral college we don't think about what it's actually going to look like once it gets changed yeah so so for me when once you start unpacking it it's like yeah, wow like so crazy you don't think about that stuff <laughs> no, for and sure I, and how... i think it's interesting because we always hear especially around elections these complaints about our two-party system yeah. and oh yeah. why did you vote for an independent or a third party candidate or whatever and there's so much like hubbub about it so i think it's a really good point that you bring here, especially, and how it applies to the Electoral College, because it's more than just being like, abolish the Electoral College. That's not necessarily the solution. And some of the reforms that we might even think of right away might not even be the solution. Because yeah. as the Electoral College was built, it's more complicated than it looks on the surface. So Totally. It's not black and white, like no. we always say. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's so interesting, because there's also people who are like, just get rid of the two-party system. and like you know, the electoral college and the way it's set up, I guess, yeah, it doesn't really allow for other parties to come through and be a victor. Like, I don't know if, has have we ever had an independent or like third party ever win an election? I don't know, maybe presidential. not. <laughs> presidential election. Um, and while that's the problem, I that's such a good point though, that, um, you know, who, who knows who could actually come up through the ranks if there wasn't a two-party system. That's such an interesting well, point. Well, you'd have to have coalitions. If yeah. nobody got to 70, you'd have to start to build coalitions that went into the House of Representatives, and that would just look extremely different. Yeah. Um, so when people start to talk about the Electoral College, I think that there definitely needs to be discussion about how to reform it, because there are challenges. People just you know just you know i start out saying hey when we when we go to vote for for, pre for for you know on election day we're not voting for president and then once people start to think about that they start kind of freaking out um you know we have to start to have a discussion about this system that we have um not what we want it to be and not what it used to be but but what we have um and and you know and if we start to change it what is that going to look like um, so, so for me, I, I hope that this is my, my book can be a, a, a kind of a jumping board for people to start to get interested into the Electoral College because it is extremely important to understand. And by me focusing on kind of these human stories, it gives a very human approach to a kind of a complex system. 
So that was that was my that was my intention in kind of writing this. And of course, the electors themselves just propelled me through it. I mean, they were they were very excited to share their story um, because they they knew that their stories were important. Um, but you know, it's kind of it gets lost every four you know in the midst between totally. that, that three years. Yeah, I also like that that you kind of also gave these electors like their human story about it too because I feel like we forget about that that like. The electoral college or yeah, human beings like doing this. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, it's still very complicated and um, you've definitely helped like shed some light on everything and make me and hopefully everyone listening have a better understanding of the electoral college as we move into that process. So thank you so much for coming on. We will add the link um, to your book in our description. Is there anywhere else we can thank find you, you or... Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Emily C. Conrad. I'm also on Instagram. That's also Emily C. Conrad. And then I have a uh, Facebook uh, page for, for the book. So it's just the Faithless book. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Um, hopefully everyone is coming out of this with a little bit of a better understanding of the very complicated process that is the Electoral College. But if you guys still have lingering questions or still confused, do not worry. Please reach out to us. You can email us at girlinthegutthepodcast at gmail.com um, or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. Our Instagram is girlinthegutthepodcast and our Twitter is girlinthegov1. Um, and while I have you on this um, whole social media situation, we're on TikTok now. Um, we're trying to reach the kids. So if you want to find us there, we're there, like, trying to be relevant. Of course, do not forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and follow us on all social media. Um, and we'll be talking to you guys next week. We have exciting things coming up. So, again, that subscribe button, very important. Um, but we will be talking to you guys next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.